Last year, we, we had a program as part of the literary community series, which was titled, Who Owns the Piece? The Magazine for the Author, which was perhaps our most successful program in the series insofar as it of having some sort of tangible effect. The, the purpose of the program was to see if there were better ways of, of negotiating and, and sort of conducting that very difficult, under any circumstances, and often quite unjust relationship between the writer and the magazine. And out of that came uh, a, a useful document called the Writer's Bill of Rights, which uh, I think had 10 principles as to how writers of articles for magazines should be handled and how their, their copy should be handled with respect to acceptance, editing, placement, titling, and so on. Uh, the success of that uh, particular symposium sort of inspired us to try to do the same thing this evening as sort of the rousing climax of our year and also of, of the literary community with respect to book publishing. Um, to begin with, this is not an adversary proceeding. Uh, we're, Hopefully, we will not all simply use it as a chance to, to get off our chests all those uh, grudges, resentments, uh, injustices, uh, accusations, frustrations, disappointments, and defeats that we have suffered at the hands of, of the publishing industry, uh, including those of us who work within that industry. Um, Rather than sort of knocking heads together, the hope is that we will put our heads together to see if there are better ways to uh, conduct the relationship between the author and the publishing house. Um, there, are, there has been in recent years a, a certain amount of, of fresh and I think valuable attention paid to the rights of authors in, in the publishing condition. Uh, the Authors Guild, for example, has developed a new contract as a kind of model for uh, the legal uh, obligations on both sides, particularly on the side of the publisher. Most publishing contracts up until now sort of read with somewhat the same tone and intention as landlords' leases. The landlord is very well and, and very minutely protected. The lessee is sort of uh, given the apartment and the right to inhabit it for a couple of years. That's about as far as it goes. That the Authors Guild contract has you know, tried to rectify this with respect to a number of matters such as you know, being edited without knowing about it, uh, um, so on. But even so, beyond the Authors Guild's view of, of what a healthy relationship might be, there lie those other areas which contracts, in a sense, can't quite handle, uh, at least completely, and which have less to do with legality, I think, than they have to do with, with power, to let that word out and in the open. Uh, the publishing process, it seems to me, is, can be described in one way as a kind of transference of power as goes along. In other words, the writer who, be, you know, at the beginning of the process writing his manuscript is more or less in control of that manuscript. Unless, of course, he's writing it to, to order for a publisher, in which case he's perhaps less an author than a hack. But that the author is someone who more or less main, does maintain control of the manuscript until it's delivered. So he has the power. When it's delivered and accepted, it enters into a certain kind of 
relationship in which power tends to be shared, in some cases shared better than in other cases, between the author and, and his editor. With res and with respect to the terms and conditions of the contract, but also with respect to the content of the manuscript. Obviously, there are cases where authors refuse to be edited, as well as cases where editors ride roughshod over manuscripts. But I think on the whole that there is a certain amount of equity built into this relationship, or it really doesn't continue beyond one book. It's when the manuscript actually has been accepted and enters the publishing process, I think that power does begin to shift quite decidedly to the publisher. I'm thinking of such matters as cover design, jacket copy, catalog copy, advertising copy, in short, the various ways in which the publisher, with or without consultation with the author, decides on how this book is to be presented to the audience, to readers. Uh, and then, of course, as it goes further along into the actual um, design of the book and into the promotion, publicity, and merchandising of the book, the publisher, I think, tends to become more and more in control until finally the, the actual distribution of the book is pretty much something that's out of the hands of the author and entirely in the hands of the publisher. At least so it seems to me, and, you know, it may seem otherwise to others on this panel. Uh, but anyway, that's what I have to say, at least as a sort of clothesline on which perhaps we can hang some washing. Uh, before I introduce the panel, I, I would like to also introduce you to yourselves in that this is meant to be a, a genuine kind of symposium uh, in which we are not Socrates and you are, you know, the, the fall guys or the auditors, but Hopefully there will be a real dialogue going on once, you know, the panelists have had to say what they have to say to the moment, because after all, these are matters of, you know, ultimate concern, one might say to most of you who are, who are authors. And hopefully shortly into this thing, we will begin to open it for discussion from the floor. To begin with, though, my fellow panelists, on my far left is Jerome Charon, uh, who is the author of 11 books uh, in his still relatively young life um, as an author, and, uh, and perhaps uh, almost as significantly for our purposes, uh, an author who's been published by six different publishing houses. So I assume that the jury will have a certain amount to say about the uh, relationships between publishers and, and himself. Uh, next to Ger Jerry Charon is Elizabeth Hardwick, uh, a writer, uh, one of the founding editors of the New York Review of Books, um, who has also been published by several publishing houses. Uh, to my immediate left is Andre Schifrin, who is the publisher of Pantheon. Uh, and who also had, has been an editor at New American Library. To my immediate right is Robert Lesher, uh, a prominent agent in New York, uh, and who comes sort of at the last moment, uh, partly because it occurred to me uh, at the last moment that uh, we really should have an agent here uh, Without one, there's a certain kind of hole in the discussion and in, in the kind of perspective that we're trying to bring to bear. As another agent mentioned to me, I don't quite understand why you say who controls the book, the publisher or the writer, when it's perfectly obvious it's the agent who really controls it. Uh, and finally, to my far right is E.L. Doctorow, who uh, is both an edit ex-editor, uh, uh, who was the editor-in-chief of Dial and who also began at New American Library. Uh, the sons of Victor Waybright are well represented tonight and is the author of uh, several novels, uh, most recently one called uh, Ragtime. 
So uh, that's the, the panel. And uh, at this point, uh, I'd like to begin by asking them what areas of this publishing process they feel are most in need of, of reconsideration, reevaluation, and indeed of repair. Uh, anyone want to particularly start? Yes, right there? Oh, I gotta shift this thing around because it. Uh, this is for something else. So. Well, as for laundry and logistics and publishing house, publishing house, I find. Can you hear? Uh, I find certain things uh, rather strange, and that is uh, the process after you finish writing the book. That is the idea of when it goes into the stages of. There's an extraordinary amount of care and there's an extraordinary amount of participation between the author and the editor and the publisher. You go through galleries, you go through blues, you look at jacket copy, and there's a tremendous feeling of control. If this is your book, this is the way the book is going to be presented. But once that uh, sense of production is over, and you read the galleries 18 times, you go through the Jacket, you look at the jacket copy, etc., etc. But once it goes beyond that stage, it seems to enter a kind of complete randomness. What the hell happens to a book after it goes through production? That is, all of a sudden, it's never in the bookstores. Where do the reviews come from? Uh, and the book generally is dead even before the so called publishing date comes about. So that I think for almost 90% of most authors, there's an element of sham, and I don't say this in, in terms of, of an accusation because I'm sure that from the publisher's point of view, it's extremely difficult to get a book into a bookstore, but what I don't understand is all this energy, all this waste of worrying about whether you catch this error or that error, and it goes on for months and months through various stages, and then you enter a world of complete entropy where the book literally disappears, and it's that kind of thing that I find so disturbing. That is, what actually happens to the book after the physical, visible book appears? Thank you. Anyone dying to talk? Yeah? Okay. structuring the way books are being distributed, but that is not the subject of tonight's discussion. I 
think the discussion tonight is what happens to your book. I can tell you what happens to your book. We have, I think, on the whole, what is supposed to be the most effective sales force in this country. We tell our salespeople the number of books we would like them to place in each of the bookstores. They go to the bookstores. The bookstores refuse to take that number of copies. They cut down the order, even though we have an automatic system which is supposed to do an end run around that process. They simply refuse to start. There was a case not long ago when the Pickwick book chain in California accepted one novel, one copy of each novel to represent that uh, publishing house in their whatever it was, 16 stores. Even if you get the books in, I looked at some of our sales figures before coming in, you could have returns that will outnumber your new sales by 10 to 1 on a major book. In other words, you have the full question of what the stores are doing, who wants to buy what, who wants to review what, who is interested in what. And in most instances, this means that good books simply will not sell. Now, I think if we accept that as a general given, then what Jerome Charon and others are talking about is suddenly explicable. Because we have this image that we have a country that is hungry for culture, ready to spend money, filled with readers, and so on. And you will find, if you look at your figures, and I think publishers can give them to you if ever you want to ask them, what really happens. So I think a lot of the conflicts that are very real that we're talking about are between the expectations and the realities. And I think a lot of the difficulties uh, come from simply not will being willing any of us to, to admit to ourselves uh, what is really happening. I don't, I don't share Mr. Schifrin's professional I, I don't share Andre Schifrin's professional despair. I think that uh, uh, very often good books do sell. Good books very often do sell. I don't share Mr. Schifrin's professional despair. Uh, it's a hazardous process on the book level because book publishing is a cottage industry and there simply isn't enough money involved to go at any marketing in a very effective way. If a uh, toothpaste company wants to establish what they can do with a uh, toothpaste with a, a chartreuse stripe, they can spend a million dollars in Denver, and they can uh, test the product, and they can extrapolate from those figures, and they can pretty well gauge what they will be able to do elsewhere. Publishers have one chance at a book and the chance comes after the product is already finished. Uh, my reservations about, I have a lot of reservations about the marketing process, but I don't know that that's the issue tonight. My reservations go to the question of the uh, partnership between the publisher and the author. Publishers delight in saying that publishing is a partnership but it strikes me as something of an Orwellian partnership. I think the, the publisher is somewhat more equal than the other. I don't think that Mr. Charman's experience of, of looking at an edited manuscript, for example, seeing page proofs, seeing, for example, a uh, page design before the type is set is as typical as I wish it were. Most authors, particularly first authors, and very often second authors, or people who haven't had any notable success, have no chance to um, contribute to the formulation of those plans that are very often consequential to the book, how the book is going to be portrayed, and uh, the very book that is going to bear the author's name, although, of course, it also bears the name of the publisher. I think that uh, one can achieve more equity in this area. It is possible for publishers to confer and consult freely with the author at every stage, uh, not only over the copy-edited manuscript, not only over the uh, appearance of the page, the kind of type and the format that will be used, not only over the jacket design, or the jacket copy, or the catalog copy, but all the way through the publishing process. And I think this is something that publishers have long resisted doing. Uh, 
for reasons that are perfectly understandable, uh, it's a headache to uh, cope with an author, particularly an author who doesn't have the publisher's uh, experience. But um, there is a clause in virtually every publishing agreement, and I don't know the exact language of the clause, but, and I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm too far wrong, but essentially it says that the publisher shall have the right to publish the work in the form and manner the publisher deems best. It is my contention that the author should have some say in that procedure. Having been on both sides of the process, Ed, how do you feel that, that the, the problem looks from either end? associated with actors who not only have sympathy and taste, but who have the power within their organizations to get the sales force and the other departments coordinated and enthusiastic about your book. Lizzie, has anything come up so far that prompts you to speak?
think Ted raised the, the basic questions when he talked about power and control. And I think they're very different problems. Um, over the, all the years I've worked in publishing, I've disagreed violently with many of our authors. I've never had anyone wanting to leave us because we had argued with them over the content of the book. And we've had really very strong disagreements, but our feeling has always been it is the author's book. We must decide what's in the book. And he has the ultimate say. I've had many authors feeling very unhappy because we haven't made enough money for it. Uh, and that we didn't make the marketing decisions that they thought we should have made. We didn't sell as many copies, we didn't print as many copies, and so on. And I think we have to distinguish between the two questions of control. One is control over your own work and how important that is to you. And I think that our contract is vague on the question. I see no reason why one should not argue for contracts that say the author has the ultimate say as to what is in and on the book. I think that's a perfectly legitimate demand to be made. I think on the other hand, that covers most books that nobody expects to make money out of. And when you have books that people expect to make money from, then you're into a very different situation. You're into books that are going to go for, in some instances, millions of dollars. You are perfectly right to bring in accountants and lawyers and everybody else who can help you make your decision and help you protect your financial rights. But that's an infinitesimal number of books. And I think we have to realize that. We're talking about a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of books published in this country. And I think it is important to protect the rights of any entrepreneur, and any craftsman, and any artist. Uh, and I think that's a valid subject for discussion. But if we're talking about the state of literature today, we're talking about a depository subject. We are talking about sharing losses. We're talking about an enterprise that no one is willing to subsidize, the author or the publisher or the university or the government. And the question then is how do you do that? And how do you, how do you work out a, a way of even keeping books in print, much less selling them? We used to have the only edition existing in English of Hildelin's Complete Poems. We had it in English and German, and we had it a very good translation. We used to sell about 20 copies a year. Uh, now, I could give you example after example from our list and from other people's lists. And I think that's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. Uh, there is one problem that has to do with the, the equitable sharing of profit, honestly or dishonestly made. And I think that's a very real question. There is another question which has to do with the maintaining of a basic standard of literacy in this country. That is a very different question on the whole. Obviously, as Ed's presence here shows, some very good books can sell extremely well. They are, alas, among the very rare exceptions. Well, uh, I think that, that there is a, a sort of vexed area which, which I'd like to touch on between the book as the author has written it and indeed as it has gone through the editorial process and its emergence into the, into the world, uh, which has to do with, with how this book is presented, how this book is characterized. Uh, and it's here, I think, oftentimes that the author finds himself in the most sort of onerous and embarrassed position. Uh, not since Peyton Place reads the jack the beginning of the jacket copy and and here is this you know rather uh, austere novel about growing up in Binghamton and uh, and not there's only three women characters and none of them has you know a size 39 chest as is portrayed on the cover and furthermore as the the hype gets going assuming that there is any hype to be to get going at all the author finds himself saying, but that's not what I meant at all. That's not it at all. And I don't feel that uh, it's taken for granted that the author should have uh, a genuine and forceful say about how his book is to be portrayed, how it is to be characterized, indeed, and how it is to be sold. Unless he has a lot of clout, what he's likely to hear is instead one form or another of the statement, well, you know, we really know about marketing. We really know 
what sells. And leave it to us, trust us, because we know what sells. The whole thrust of the discussion so far has been that none of us really know what sells, and that this kind of argument is oftentimes a very specious one. My own feeling is that the author's right to the characterization of his book should be just as much protected by contract as is uh, uh, his right to have no changes made in his manuscript without his approval. I don't think that that's an area which really has, has been sufficiently uh, protected by conventional publishing arrangements. Uh, I'd like to uh, address myself to something Mr. Schiffer said, that uh, good books don't sell, that bad books do. And I, I don't <coughs> think that's true. I don't think bad books sell any better than good books. That is, for every Harold Robbins, you have 10 little Harold Robbins who sell as poorly as I do. So that, I mean, what Ted just said about there being a kind of randomness about the fact that publishers themselves often don't know what is going to sell. And so that very often it's that magical, you know, totemistic quality of either a book club picking up a book or you're getting a movie option or this uh, paperback sale that comes out of nowhere that creates the auras that surrounds a book. And also in defense of the publisher, in defense of the bookseller, and in defense of the editor. Uh, you can have an editor who's 100% uh, behind you, but if your last five books have steadily lost money, he's caught in a very precarious position where he's a kind of middleman between what he wants to do for you and what he or she has to represent in terms of that company. And also, as far as the publisher is concerned, we have to, again, acknowledge the fact that the publisher has risked a certain amount of his or her money on this book. And therefore, you know, what is the relationship between that gamble that the publisher has taken and your book, which you may have written with your guts, but which you're not expending any money to have produced? So that all these things, it seems to me, provide contradictions and things that aren't readily answerable. I mean, yes, of course the publisher is going to say that your Beckett-like novel is going to sound like Peyton Place. But if the publisher doesn't, then it means that you're not only going, not going to sell anything at all, it's not even going to get into the bookstores. And suppose it even does get into the bookstores. It doesn't mean that in any sense the book, the book is going to be bought at all. So that, as I say, it's a kind of ping pong game in which there are few winners. Seems to me, neither the publisher uh, nor the writer. I think there's some questions. Yeah, I, I think if anyone else, unless someone on the panel is you know, dying to say something, we can now open this up to the floor as well. Back there, yeah. Yes, Anne? Could you stand up?
me just say a word about that. I think obviously the lack of a proper bookstore infrastructure is half of our problem. In Germany, they have very good bookstores because they wait two or three years until they have a paperback, and the paperback is far less expensive. I think you really have to realize the problem of a country which has maybe, what, 100 decent bookstores. Most cultural centers don't have bookstores. The bookstores are figuring out on a dollar per cubic foot basis how they can make the most money. And you have a degree of, of capitalism so, in, so complete that if the University of California bookshop decides that Wild Toms is selling fewer copies than the unvanquished, you pull out Wild Toms and you stock more unvanquished. You don't stock all the Faulkner the way your small town German bookstore will stock all of Mann or Kafka or Goodman. So I, I really think we can't escape these problems that, we're, that are there in our culture as, as a whole. There are very, very few people who are interested in selling a full range of books. Most people who are running bookstores or book departments are out as much as the publishers, and most publishers are guilty here too, to make as much money from as few titles as they possibly can. And it's, I think it's hopeless in a country which has as few bookstores as we have to talk as if we were Germany. We're not. I just give you one example. I, I was last year in, in Jackson, Mississippi. The only good bookstore in Jackson is the John Birch Society bookstore. And the only place where you can buy any number of books, which is the local department store, was one of the few places where I heard a customer go in and said to the clerk, what is on the bestseller list? Because that's what they wanted to buy. And even there, you have a decent newspaper in Jackson that publishes good reviews. I mean, I, I don't think we can avoid these problems of infrastructure. Yes, back there. Yeah.
Well, you know, I don't, I don't think that, that the, the wisdom or authority for these proposals necessarily lies among the, the five or six of us here. Uh, I think, you know, you in the audience have been through this process yourself. And what we would like to hear, I think, are those areas which you feel can legitimately be rectified. I mean, what, would you, what proposals would you like to see incorporated into such a document of an author's Bill of Rights? Newspaper serialization after the book comes out. And in the normal publishing contract, the publisher can act with complete authority. He can sell a portion of a book to a newspaper for serialization. The newspaper, in, in point of fact, can mutilate the text, still attribute it to the author, and the author doesn't have any say, largely because he may not have tried to exercise the say he might have had. Now, all of these things are correctable. Um, the, uh, let's go into the paperback area for a moment. Uh, I'm not saying, by the way, that, that all publishers are malevolent or malicious. I, I mean, they're not, and most of them are, uh, wish that they could oblige the author in every respect. Uh, but when it comes to the, uh, the sale of paperback rights, uh, my view is that if an author wants to entrust his work to a particular hardcover publisher because of the esteem he has for that publisher or the regard he has for a particular editor or because of the money the publisher will pay or whatever. He should also have some say over where that publisher or to whom that publisher can sell paperback rights. And these things indeed are achievable. And there are some firms here in fact, I think the people at Random House and Tanakh and Pantheon automatically seek approval of, of the authors, uh, from the author of any such sale before it's consummated. Not all publishers do, but these things are all utterly achievable. And these are the things that authors simply have to bear in mind every time they enter into an agreement. That's Ed, did you? second thing I just want to throw out here is that uh, uh, the luxury of this discussion may be itself disappearing because of the nature of uh, the publishing industry and what's happening to it. Uh, Andre Schiffen, for instance, is uh, I mean, it's silly to divide to the stage between publishers and authors when you're dealing with a publisher like Andre who is, um, is really terrific and uh, is as serious and committed and is literate and as uh, uh, gifted and creative as, uh, as anyone who has the, has the name author, even though he's a publisher. And uh, I just wonder what was going to happen 15 to 20, 25 years from now 
if a conglomerate um, affects begin uh, to change the nature of editors, change the nature of publishing personnel, change the nature of authors. Uh, and I just want to throw that out as a, a little scare tactic to wake up. Yes. If we're getting to the, the state of discussion where we're discussing what ought to be done, uh, I, I share with, with a, uh, a certain pessimism about what conglomeration and what the future of publishing holds. Publishing is not a profitable industry, as I'm sure every publisher has told you. Uh, Pre-tax profits for publishing as a whole are 7%. So it's a litany that we all chat at AAP meetings, which means that anyone with money to invest will do far better by going to a savings bank uh, than People who are buying publishing are buying it with chilly expectations of profits which will suddenly be materialized by movie sales, paperback sales, or other things that are extraneous. Uh, I think we're talking about an industry which doesn't have that much to share at this point and is going in a way downwards. There's a polarization between the books. I didn't say that, uh, that bad books sold. I said that on the whole, good books don't sell. And I think that's the problem to which we should address ourselves. I think that the best-selling authors on the whole are well protected. They have good lawyers, they have good agents, they, they do very well. I'm much more concerned by, by people whose books are difficult to publish or barely publishable uh, in terms of, of even breaking even, not talking about making money. And I think we should ask questions like, why do most major universities, including NYU down the street, not have a decent bookstore? Uh, why do many of us teach in universities that don't have bookstores? Why do we insist that the Waldens and the Daltons, who are part of the maximizers, determine who can buy and sell books in a given town? Uh, why do all publishing houses have to be profit-making organizations? Why can't some of them be not-for-profit public corporations? There's an attempt right now to salvage Beacon Press, which depends on two, three hundred thousand dollars, just to keep them going as a non-profit publishing house, and the efforts may fail. Um, we are allowed to give away books. I spent this morning trying desperately to give away books uh, which we, for which we can get a tax write-off to hospitals and prisons. Uh, but there is no systematic organi organized program by which books can be given away to small libraries, to minority groups, to prisons, to people who actually uh, could determine what they want. I once tried to suggest to the, to the NEA that they try and give away certain categories, such as poetry, which can't possibly be sold. Um, I think those are areas which I would urge that we look into. I think it's understandable for every author to, to be interested in protecting the rights of those few of his brethren who have made the most money. But I don't really think that this is the major direction in my mind of, of where pen and organizations like that could go. I think the real problem is how did you save most people who, who are in a sinking lifeboat? And I think there are lots of things to which we all of us could address ourselves. 
which will try to salvage some other methods of getting books to readers, which don't go through a mechanism which is proving time and again to be faulty. Yeah, come again. I said that we felt, morally speaking, and it's not in our contract, and perhaps it should be, the author had ultimate control of what was in his book. It can, it can be. And let, let me say, I don't, first of all, I don't think contracts matter as much as we like to think they do. I think we, we could certainly put that in. We have put it in our contract, but the author. I think our lawyers would say that it is already in there by absence of a provision to the contrary. Uh, I think we, we have in our contract that authors have an approval of, of the paperback deal. We have written into many of our contracts the authors approve the, the jacket. Let me just tell you one thing. I, in 20 years I've been in publishing. I've never known an author to reject a paperback deal. I've never known a jacket sketch to be rejected. I think these are really relatively meaningless. I'm all in favor of putting those in if you think they're going to help. I'm simply saying that I think you're diverting yourself from the real problems. Uh, I, I certainly put those in. I don't think you're dealing with the real issues, which is why I've spoken as I have. I, and that, that's all I can say. I, I don't know what to say without being repetitive, but I can't emphasize this too strongly. I mean, in the past, I'm not alone in this as an agent, and I'm not a particular advocate necessarily of agents. I think in an ideal world, uh, the contracts would be equitable enough so that an agent didn't have to be there to correct certain abuses. Uh, but I can assure you that I see contracts often that contain advertising commitments on behalf of the author. I see contracts from time to time that contain commitments regarding the size of the first printing. I see documents or contracts that give the author the right of control, sometimes it's true not to be unreasonably withheld, which is a little bit arguable, over the jacket, the jacket copy, all of the things we've talked about tonight. And if it doesn't happen consistently, it's because authors don't try for it consistently. It's a vital requirement. Well, um, to answer what has been said, I think one of the predicaments is that there's a very, very peculiar relationship between the author and the publisher. Are they friends? Are they enemies? Do they dance together? Do they hate each other? Do they love each other? And it's very tenuous and tentative, it seems to me. My only feeling is that, if 
Finally, the author himself has to be a kind of entrepreneur. He has to not only exercise uh, a kind of control over the book, he has to have a sense of what the market is about. In, in some sense, he has to become his own agent. And it seems to me that it's very hard to deal with this author-publisher uh, relationship because it's so uneven, so awkward, and finally, you know, uh, in one sense, uh, you know, it, can't, it has to be determined in a very individual way. You can hate your publisher, but he can do an awful lot for you. You can love your publisher, he can do nothing for you. So that, you know, how do you deal? How do you negotiate? You get down on one knee and beg or what? I don't think that the idea of changing a contract necessarily will do very much. And that's one of the predicaments. Yes. Well, um, if there are any other, yeah, Sam. Well, I think one of the things that's sort of emerged in this discussion is perhaps the healthiest attitude that a writer can have toward the publisher is one of expect nothing. <laughs> expect nothing. And then the burden is really on you to make, make your particular claims to how you wish your book to be published just as you make your particular claims as to how you want to be paid for it. And if nothing else, if we can begin to sort of just mobilize an individual writer's minds, the fact that they really have more leverage, they have more options, they have more opportunity than they often allow themselves to exercise. They don't have to be passive. They don't have to sort of allow them to lie down and be ravished by a publisher's, you know, line or his indeed his activities with their book but to stand up and fight for your book as a book, just as you stand up and fight for it as a manuscript. And, you know, it's true that, we have, that there's a larger context of economics in which these issues are finally framed, and this context, as anyone in publishing will tell you, becomes almost year by year more onerous, more problematic, and in some houses, more desperate. But nonetheless, you still write a book and you still want it to be published in a way that's reasonably appropriate to what you've written. And the burden of effort is really on you, I think. And that's one of the things I think that's emerged from this discussion. What we might do, I think, is perhaps after this meeting, those who are interested in, say, serving on a committee that might, say, take the Authors Guild contract, which already does exist, which already you know, has a certain amount of of cachet and indeed authority, and see what has been left out of that in providing as much as possible for authors. Not so much that every publisher is going to then say, yea, verily, now the authors have spoken and we shall respond, but rather just as an educational device for authors themselves as if to, to say to them, these are your rights. 
And if you don't exercise them, don't go around saying, I've been screwed. They're your rights, and it's incumbent on you to exercise them. Well, I don't know. I think that's about, we've been going on for better than an hour and 20 minutes. I'd like to end. But before I do, um, you're all invited to descend to our bar downstairs and enjoy, you know, now that we've gotten away from that sort of neo warehouse on 20th Street and have a place to drink and, and talk and so on, that you're invited to adjourn to the bar and continue the discussion there. Thank you.